0: This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Science by the Slice. I'm Philip Stokes, Education Coordinator at the Pi Center and host of this podcast. This is the third and final episode of our series on COVID-19. We spent the first two episodes discussing how this pandemic came about, what's led to the spread of the virus, and how the virus might spread in a vaccinated population. And now, we're going to discuss what people think about the pandemic. So for this perspective, I'm going to talk with two social scientists, Dr. Lori Baker and Dr. Shelley Rampold. Dr. Baker is an associate professor at the University of Florida and researcher with the Pi Center. And Dr. Rampold is a research coordinator with the Pi Center. In our discussion, they share findings from studies they have conducted throughout the pandemic. In these studies, they've learned just how prepared Americans thought they were at the beginning of the pandemic and how that changed over time, and whether people really trusted the information they were hearing about the pandemic. But first, we have a segment that I think you'll really enjoy. I thought, since we're going to talk about what adult Americans think, why don't we find out what children think? I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, some of my friends on social media were sharing a questionnaire where they would ask their children some basic questions about COVID-19 and then post their responses. And I remember the answers being really honest, very instinctive, and almost innate. And what better children to interview than your very own? So in this next segment, you'll hear from my oldest daughter and Dr. Baker's three sons on what they think about COVID-19.
2: What is the coronavirus? The coronavirus can kill you. The coronavirus is a gas
1: which can kill you okay all right do you know the germs that we talk about sometimes uh yes and we call it coronavirus sometimes yeah what do you think about the germs and coronavirus well i think you could do um
2: i think you could get sick what has changed since the coronavirus happened? We have to wear masks. How do you get the coronavirus? By breathing in. It. Okay, that was Liam's answer, but what's LJ's answer? Well, you have to wear a mask.
1: Also, have to wear a mask. Or if not, you'll get it. And you get it from breathing in to your body if you breathe in. Around other people who have COVID 19, you're getting COVID 19. There's something I need to say. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a
0: daddy question that I want to ask daddy. Yeah. What if the germs will never go, the germs will never go gone away real life? What if that?
1: If the germs never go away? Well, I'm not quite sure. There's always many different types of germs around. What do you mean, many? (laughs) Well, there's germs are little things that you can't see. Small bacteria and viruses. and You mean like little green dots? Yeah, they could be little green dots. They could be. But they're very, very tiny. We can't see them with our eyes. And they're always around, and they can always make us sick, uh, which is why we do things like washing our
0: hands. And some... and and um washing my hands
1: and wearing masks.
2: What do you do to not get sick, Lawson? What do you do to not
1: get sick? Well mask and play video games. Wear a mask and play video games So, so what do you think people should do now that we have the germs here?
2: Um well I well
0: we're just something about me. I used to not wearing. I used to not
1: like wearing masks, but now I do like to wear masks. Why do you like to wear a mask now? Well, because because I because I because I because I really because I loved the shop. The shop when we went to the grocery store together.
2: Yes. The mask is built
1: so people, if you can breathe in the mask, but you can't, you can't, you can't breathe the COVID-19 out of the mask. So basically, you people who have COVID-19 can give you it. Only people who have COVID has to wear a mask, so they don't give it to you.
2: Anything else about COVID-19 that you want to tell our listeners?
1: Yes. it Sucks.
0: Okay, so, bye. Thanks for recording.
1: That was Coraline, age 4, Lawson, age 4, Liam, age 6, and LJ, age 9. And now, we'll go to my conversation with Dr. Baker and Dr. Rampold as Dr. Baker is introducing their research.
2: We developed a survey um, to send to a public audience, an American public audience, in mid-March. And at that same time, we launched a survey with ag and natural resources leaders across the United States, sampled through an international leadership program so that we could make some comparisons there and ask about general health concerns economic concerns how prepared they were and that they thought others were as well as communication concerns which is kind of the core of what we do and after that first launch we were able to get some money from our research dean's office to continue asking um, those questions again over time. So we had another public survey that we did in May and we had another one that we did in August. Each time we kind of learned more information and saw what impacts were happening and were able to add some additional questions. And so we do have some questions that we've gathered all of these times, and then we have some questions that have changed depending on what has been happening with the pandemic at that time. We also have a fourth data collection planned that as we're recording this, we're literally finalizing those questions and ready to launch that will focus more on the vaccine issue.
1: One thing I do want to kind of jump into is all of the information that's out there. Um, You know, right now it's called the covid infodemic, right? We've probably all heard that term. This is the first pandemic we've had in the modern era with the internet, with just the ease of access to information. So first off, my first question is this, where are people getting their information?
2: Sure. And that has been interesting along the way, because certainly when we first started um, talking about this issue, we were literally around a conference table talking about how much inaccurate information was out there. And that was the basis for us starting to ask some of these questions. And that has just really continued over time, as, as you say, Philip. Um, but for the most part, people really have responded in our surveys that where they're getting information are the sources that we would typically think about people getting information and want people to get information from. Um, Those include their healthcare providers, the CDC, the World Health Organization, um, so credible sources. And in general, as we've asked people, they've said, you know, they want to do what scientists want them to do. They want to do what their health care provider wants them to do. The places where we've really seen um, people's concern for communication are what other people are sharing and where other people are getting their information. So they certainly have had some concerns about where, um, if they're getting accurate information, but the bigger concerns across time have been for what other people are doing and what other people are sharing.
1: So, so it's kind of funny to me. It's like everyone thinks they know how to get the accurate information right there. And they can decipher what's, what's truth, what's accurate and what's inaccurate, but others can't, right? They don't, they can't put that on <laughs> someone else to do that. Yeah. Is that right?
2: Exactly. That that really um, does seem to be what people are saying is that, yes, 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 I, I know what's going on. Not to say that they don't have concerns. There certainly have been concerns about whether they're getting accurate information, but they're much more concerned about other people and what other people are saying and what other people are sharing. So yeah, in general, we seem to think that our own personal choices of where we're receiving information are accurate. And
0: to interject that kind and this
1: of... This is Dr. Shelley Rample. of our
0: non-COVID-related research that we've done, um, we consistently see concerns about other people knowing the key information that they need to know to make a decision about A, B, or C, whatever it is that we're talking about. And we consistently see people say that they would be more likely to use these trusted you know, official sites or um, sources of information or that they trust these official websites or sources and and whatnot. And then when we do a little bit more deeper of information analytics and where people are actually getting information, they say, I don't, I don't trust social media, but that's where they're seeing information. So it's, it's kind of creates a little bit of a conundrum for us in communications of like, okay, they say if they had their choice, they would get it from Trusted source A, B, and C. They trust source A, B, and C, but when they're actually seeing information, it's information shared by Uncle Joe through Aunt Sally from somewhere else, and that's where they're actually receiving it. So like where they say they would go and what they trust versus what they're actually using looks very different. So it's we're kind of it's kind of a challenge for us in the communications field of what do we do with that information? We know what they, you know, we know these things, but we know what their actual behaviors are. So what do we do with that now? And that's not any different from what we're seeing in, in COVID. You know, there's a thousand ways you can analyze this data. Um, so we're kind of stuck with a little bit, how do we best, you know, market this or, or communicate about this?
2: Yeah, and that's a valid point for all of the constructs that we measured in this, as well as other surveys we've done, is people are often reporting their best self. And so sure, they know where to get quality information and they would like to seek quality information. But day to day, do we always go to the CDC first or are we waking up and checking Instagram and Facebook first? And then maybe we're confirming it with the CDC or with another source, but um But people; these are self-reported behaviors. We're not literally following these people around, so we're relying on what they're telling us they're doing.
0: I think a big part of that goes back to like active versus passive information seeking and receiving. So uh, the the folks who are actively seeking out information, yeah, they are going to go to the CDC, the WHO, or whoever. Um, But the people who aren't act when they're not actively seeking, they're just passively receiving it. They're going to see this on their you know, on different like news channels, like Fox News, um, CNN, MSNBC, or their local TV news providers, because it's just on in the background. It's on in the background when you go to the doctor's office. It's on in the background when you get in the car. It's on in the background when you're at your house. And so you hear something that piques your interest and you look. So that's a, I think it's really important to distinguish between like active information searching when you're like, I have this specific question about the symptoms of COVID-19 versus, I'm not actively looking for something, but I have this on the background. Wait, what did he or she just say? Or they just say? And then they're getting information that way when they're not even actively seeking it. It's just on your TV or news broadcasting programs constantly. So those, those two different types of information seeking there too. So I think that's important to consider and trying to figure out where people are getting getting that information.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. We We don't know which information or what combination of information is really directing people's behaviors their um just kind of what they're doing in their daily life because yeah i mean like you said dr rampold if if someone's looking up the symptoms of covid-19 of course they're going to they're going to google it right or or put it in their internet browser and then oh the cdc's the first thing that's that's trusted i'm going to click on that but there's so much other information that's coming in through social media, through, like you said, talk shows. I mean, I mean, this is stuff y'all have already said, and I think that's gonna we're gonna get to that in some of our other topics that we're getting to, to really kind of help understand maybe what people, what information people are using. So let's talk a little bit about the concerns for the illness itself. Of course, COVID nineteen has disrupted life for so many different reasons, and um, the the most basic one is the illness itself. And people have different thoughts on how severe the illness is or how serious we should be taking it. So what are the concerns people have about maybe their health, about the health of their friends or family, just the illness itself?
2: I think one of the most interesting things we saw on the health concern side of things is when we asked people early on in in mid-March about this, they were most concerned about their loved ones in all of the general health concerns and and whether they were prepared kind of concerns. They were more concerned about their loved ones than they were themselves. Well at least relatively because they were concerned about themselves, sure. but compared themselves concerned with like mm-hmm. others concerned. Yeah,
0: I'm concerned about me, but man, I'm really concerned about grandma, grandpa, mm-hmm. mom and dad.
2: Yeah, that's true. They were concerned about themselves, but not near as much as others. And when we moved into May and asked these questions, people were starting to get a little more concerned about themselves um, in comparison to their loved ones. And so you could see that the toll the pandemic was taking was certainly increasing. And then when we moved into August, we started to see um, that level of concern for themselves and others and loved ones. Getting much closer to the same numbers that that they were about equally concerned about themselves now as they were about others. And I think, you know, just as the pandemic continued, people were starting to see actual people that they knew that had it that had died from it um, that had severe impacts, whether those were, were actually death or not. Um, and so people were just starting to see, oh, this isn't a thing that I'm just concerned about others happening. And I'm concerned about the world. I'm concerned about me and I'm concerned, right. um, about what this means for our future. Well, I mean, personally, I can relate
0: to that, you know, I mean, N of one over here, just me, but at the beginning I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so concerned about mama you know she's on an oxygen tank she needs oxygen she's got severe respiratory complications my mom's immunocompromised what if my grandma and my mother die from this super concerned right not not really concerned about me and my husband as it went on i'm like shoot i could get this thing what if my husband dies what is, like what do i do then so i started finding just personally even though i'm the researcher going into this i'm like ah eh, i'm fine it's, it's whatever I, i'll survive And then I was watching more, more and more people my age get this and like struggle through it. I, I fit right in with the research we found of super concerned about all of my at risk loved ones to suddenly being, I don't want this (laughs) being very concerned (laughs) personally for my own health. So I can, you know, again, it's just my perspective on it, but I was starting to fit in right with those trends in the data.
1: Right. I'm. I'm reminded of, you know, back towards, like y'all said, the beginning of the pandemic, the question was, do you, do you know anyone that has had COVID-19? And generally the answer was like, no, or or like my friend's brother's relative. It was like two or three degrees of separation. And now, I as you both have said, we've all know, have either had it ourselves, or we know someone very close to us, a close friend, a close relative who has had it. And it sounds like that has really changed people's health concern it, it, when it becomes impactful to ourselves you know that's that's what i'm kind of gleaning from this that that's kind of where you get the shift in concern
2: sure and we've seen that with other agricultural issues too right when you're talking about you know, am I opposed to feedlots within a certain area? No, nope, nope, not opposed to that at all. What if that were to come in your backyard? Oh, maybe I am concerned about that issue. So um, it happens with health issues. It happens with other ag issues that the closer it is to us, the more we are aware of it and the more we internalize it as a real problem. I want to look at
1: the in- economic impacts. Did you get a gauge on... Cause I would say that's probably number two besides behind healthcare in, impacts and per, personal life, economic impacts. People have lost jobs, businesses. I mean, you name it. Did you find any information on that, how that's impacted people economically?
0: So yes and no, we didn't. What, what, here's what we did do or here's what we didn't do. And here's what we did do. We did track their employment status to see like, as a result of, You know, COVID-19, what is your current employment status compared to what it was before? But when it came to actual income loss or stuff like that, we didn't actually track this like, you know, progression of pre-post-COVID. What we did do, though, in addition to looking at employment status, working from home, that kind of stuff, we did... Assess their concerns that were related to the economy. So that would include things like I am concerned about my businesses, you know, bottom line, if applicable, I'm uh, applicable. I'm concerned about this my state's economy, my community's economy, uh, the United States economy, the global economy. You know, I'm concerned about increase in food prices, <laughs> increased prices in toilet paper, because that's a hot commodity. You know, we looked at that kind of stuff about their concerns. So while we didn't track tangible behaviors or events, we did look at what they feel and what they think about economic related items, if that makes sense.
2: And we did see those get worse over time. I think that was really one of our entry points when we first started talking about this is we wanted to see the impact um, people were feeling related to the economy and People were concerned from the very beginning for both the U.S. economy, their state's economy, their local economy, and those concerns have continued to grow, really not at a huge rate compared to looking at health concerns, but I think it's because people were concerned from the very beginning about what this was going to do to the economy. So they've continued to be concerned. The concern over rising food prices has also continued to increase. We did not see as much concern on the ag and natural resource leaders' side for increased food prices. And I think a general audience might look at that and think, oh, well, that's because they might make more money if food prices increased. Well, That's not really how the agricultural economy works is probably the people that are producing the food are not going to get extra money just because the cost of food rises. That money is really going for increased transportation costs. We saw a lot of disruption in transportation services and a supply chain that wasn't prepared for this type of disruption. So that's where the increased dollars are going, not necessarily to our agricultural producers out there. But many of our ag producers also know that the cost of food in this country compared to disposable income is really low when you look at other countries. So um, I think there's a knowledge gap there related to what might happen, as opposed to that being an impact that people are able to go into the grocery store and really see this is happening. Um, Maybe I'm not able to get the products I want and the ones that I do want, I'm having to pay more for. So again, that one we did see trend up more with the public audience than we did um, with our ag and natural resource audiences.
0: And I also think not to not to assume that I know because we did not directly measure this in this study, but we have over time in different projects um, looked at like public knowledge of like where their food comes from and how it's priced, et cetera, et cetera. I think some of that speaks to just the difference in, and and content knowledge and experience with the different audiences. So I think it is completely warranted for the public to be concerned about a rise in food prices because they see a shortage and equate that with like a rise in food prices. Whereas Some of your people who are in the industry, you know, in the trenches on the ground doing this every day, have a better, a little bit better understanding of what a pandemic like this actually looks like for at the end for the consumer, are a little bit less concerned about like those food prices, not just because of you know what Dr. Baker had said about the impact on them, but just their knowledge of what this actually means for for prices for commodities. And so I think that makes a lot of sense considering the different backgrounds and experiences of the two groups of why you might see less concern about those in the trenches versus more concerns of those who are receivers of it and say, I can't get milk. It's gonna the price is gonna go up then, you know, because that makes sense, supply and demand. Why wouldn't you think that? Um, so I think that, that makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way. But across the board, I do wanna say the economic concerns were the highest of all the things to be concerned about, public ag and natural resource leaders, everyone was really concerned about the economic outcomes, you know, of COVID-19.
1: So we've been talking about some of the concerns that people have, whether it's with the illness, whether it's with the economy. What are some of the other concerns or how have things maybe changed over time? Some of the
0: other trends that we've seen, the way we broke this out in the research that we did, they involve preparedness concerns, you know, level of preparedness for myself, my community, my state, and then communication concerns of how are we receiving information? Is it accurate? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And these these two areas of concern are, are really interesting to, uh, to me because they weren't super high levels of concern at the beginning. But we have seen really, really, you know, big increases in in the amount of concern for those things. So when it comes to preparedness concerns, being prepared about our state's ability to deal with COVID-19, about the United States' ability to deal with COVID-19, the globe's, the world's ability to deal with COVID-19, we've seen really big spikes, especially in like that April-May area between March and May just went, that, that spike went through the roof. And that was the same thing with communication concerns. I'm afraid that I'm not getting accurate information. I'm afraid that my loved ones aren't getting accurate information. I'm afraid that people are sharing inaccurate information. We saw a huge spike in that between March and April area to August. That one was really big between like May and August, whereas the preparedness was really big more in the front end between May and or between March and May. So we've seen a lot of really big spikes in those areas of concern.
2: And I think if you reflect on what was happening at those times when we first started asking um, mid-March these questions, we saw pockets of COVID-19. You know, New York was hit really hard, us in Florida were hit hard, California was hit hard. But the middle of the country hadn't really seen a lot of impact yet. So by the time we were reaching May and certainly August, everyone was seeing this somewhere in their communities. So the same as we talked about some of these variables over time is when it got closer to people, we started seeing spikes in how prepared they thought they were. They may have said, oh, yeah, sure. We're prepared. We're prepared because there were beds available at their local emergency room. But as things got worse all across the country, there were no longer beds available. And they felt like maybe maybe we aren't as prepared. And again, the same with communication and information sharing. It tended to get worse as it got more personal and as people were seeing that this isn't just going to be a problem that happens on the coasts, we're going to see it all across the United States. The other thing that we've seen happen from that early time frame to the later time frames is that health recommendations and preparedness recommendations were changing. So the first time we started asking these questions, we didn't even know what social distancing was other than something we personally practiced when we wanted to stay home. Um, We also, at that point in time, had no idea that we should be wearing masks. That wasn't a recommendation that was coming out. And so we've had to update our questions along with the pandemic. But from a personal perspective, we've also seen that recommendations were changing along the way and we understand why we work with healthcare professionals who can explain to us why that's happening um, but there are a lot of americans out there who maybe aren't as familiar with science and aren't as familiar with the scientific process so it's confusing when your doctor tells you at one point in time no you don't need to wear a mask to Yes, you absolutely should be wearing a mask when you go out in public. And, and the same with getting close to people and maintaining this six foot barrier that we're now all very familiar with. Those types of things changed along the way. So it was a challenging time for communicating what was current information. And we'll see that continue with the vaccine. There's already things coming out of, will we still have to wear masks? Will we still need to be doing these other practices all the time? And and science will evolve on that, and our communication will have to evolve at the same time as the science does.
1: So these preparedness uh, concerns and communication concerns, they've changed over time as the, uh, the- pandemic became more severe and dr baker you talked about that could be maybe linked to some at least perceived just uncertainty in our leaders and our and our healthcare providers to say to go from rec- not recommending masks to go to wear wearing masks how does that play into science communication and what how people view science and um you know, are we asking too much from the public to take a look at all this information when it's not necessarily consistent coming from the scientific community?
2: That's a very valid point. And I think this is the first time, possibly since 1918, that we have seen something like this unfold so quickly. The majority of us are unaware of what's happening related Uh, to viruses related to public health because we haven't had to be concerned. But here we are in a time of a pandemic in an information age and people are concerned. So they're seeking information and all of what's out there online is not true. And some of it's not even reputable, but people are seeking information and they're choosing who to follow while not understanding that the science behind it is evolving in real time. So what happens is we try something and we see if it works. And that's a part of the scientific process. So there are recommendations laid out with the best knowledge we have and the best concepts that we have. And then we try it. And we watch it and we observe. And if it doesn't work, then we found a way that doesn't work and we move on to the next thing that happens. And most of the time, those things are happening in a lab. Those things are happening behind closed doors. But in a time where we're seeing such a public health crisis in a pandemic, those things are happening in full view of the public. And that's scary for some people because they say, oh, well, they tried this and it didn't work. So they have no idea what's going on. Well, that's not true. That's really how the scientific process works is we may have a thousand different ideas that fail before we get one idea that works. And trial and error is a part of the scientific process. So the more that we can communicate that scientific process and the reason why we're trying things and sometimes they don't work, and that's actually a good thing because that means we're coming closer to the solution, um, the better it will be for science communication. But It is concerning and people get scared when they see how many ways aren't working. Hopefully the vaccine is a step in that right direction that people are starting to see that all of the failed experiments and all of the things that we tried and didn't work. We are coming to more ideas of how the virus spreads, how it works, and how we can control it in the future. But I think we're regularly seeing that COVID is another thing that we're gonna have to deal with every year. And it may grow and it may change and the vaccine may have to grow and change with it and the science will evolve. And and that's just watching science in real time.
0: Yeah, I agree with everything that Dr. Baker said. And Philip, you asked if um, we think it's too much, you know, to ask the public to be able to navigate through this, or is it something we should expect the public to be able to navigate through and my answer is yes and no because yes i do think we need to push and ask that the public you know public me, me being a member of that uh, that public as well asking that people seek really truly seek out information but also at the same time, I don't think it's weird that people are responding based on their emotions. I don't think it's weird that people are responding based on fear. And not everyone has training and access in, in researching and understanding scientific information. You know, the CDC put out this beautiful um, data document that was available to the public. And I went, not over it because they had created codes on like comorbidities. And it was really, really cool. But I don't expect someone who is an expert in this other area to be able to just jump on their computer and suddenly be an expert in this area. So I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be accountability, but I think there also needs to be a lot of grace when it comes to, when it comes to understanding some of the trial and error processes we see and like in science and that, that kind of fall, you know, that falls to us as science communicators as agricultural communicators. That's our job is to help bridge that gap to say, here's what we, you know, this is our area, here's what we know, and here is the information in a digestible format because we can't expect everyone to do that. So I think it's kind of a yes and no. I think, I think everyone needs to take a little bit of personal responsibility and really seeking out the answers, but I think everyone needs to allow for a lot of grace when it comes to people's understanding of that, because people are scared and they're trying to employ heuristics to make decisions quickly for themselves, their family, their children, you know, their loved ones. So we got to have a little bit of grace when it comes to some of that, because it's, it's, it's,
1: it's confusing. So the concern is obviously there from the public. And um, one of the things we talked about is can, can our hospitals or, or can our leadership kind of, are they prepared? But a lot of what we're doing with this pandemic comes down to individuals, right? Individual behaviors comes down to our actions. So there's many guidelines that have been in place for for many months now. So what have you found on willingness to comply to these guidelines and what are kind of the motivations that kind of get people to wear a mask or social distance or whatever, whatever that might be?
2: As I said previously, we didn't ask these it all the time frames because we didn't even know about these things when we were talking about in march so i think you know earlier you're asking us about what we can expect the public to do and what we can expect them not to do and this is one area where we really need the public to step up. These are personal behaviors. And luckily, what we were really finding in this data, um, both in the second time frame, which would have been in May, and the third time frame, which would have been in August, is that people were able and willing to participate in social distancing. And the same was true for wearing a mask. Because again, at both of those time frames, we knew that people were supposed to be wearing masks. So overwhelmingly, we were seeing that people were willing and able to do those activities. But we also want to talk about the fact that this is how they are representing themselves in self-reported data. And they likely are reporting what they're willing and able to do the majority of the time. But there may be times where everyone makes mistakes Um, Or doesn't participate in these activities, or thinks, oh, well, this one activity is probably fine for me to do. And then they find out that really they were participating in an event that ended up spreading the virus more. So these are some of the most important things we found prior to the vaccine to really combat the spread of COVID 19. So Um, digging in deeper, Dr. Rampold has done a lot of work in understanding what has motivated people to either make these changes or not make these changes. So I will let her talk about that. So we asked a lot of questions
0: based on like that kind of theoretical framework. And what we found was like Dr. Baker had just said, the large majority of our respondents were able and willing to social distance, able and willing to wear a mask. But what we specifically found was that the people have, who had more positive beliefs about the benefits of social distancing, who really felt that this was good, healthy, important, um, wise, uh, recommended. And also the people who felt that other people wanted them to do it. You know, my government officials want me to do it. My doctor wants me to do it. My mother wants me to do this. And I wanted to kind of comply with those beliefs of what others felt. and. Than the people who had more control over it. Like, yeah, if I put a mask on my kid enough times, if I put it back on them enough times, they'll actually wear the mask in the grocery store. <laughs> or I have money to buy a mask. I have access to masks, you know. So, you know, someone with a entry or a mid-level or a higher level job has a mask, can wear a mask. Someone who is homeless on the streets who may not may not have a mask, maybe a little bit less likely to do that kind of stuff when it comes to social distancing, just because they don't have that control over it. So we found that those who had more positive beliefs about it, who believed that others wanted them to do it and had more control over their personal lives in that situation were more likely to comply with social distancing beliefs. And that kind of, that fits in with theory. It's not this absurd finding. It's just another example that fits into the, this theoretical framework and that can help really market market this type of messaging of here's where you can, if we're finding, boom, am back up a little bit, sorry. If we're finding that a big problem is people aren't complying with social distancing measures because they, they physically can't because it's out of their control, well then that tells us that the need for communication or intervention or action is in helping people put this in their control. So then we know how to direct our communication efforts or our state funds you know giving homeless people masks giving people who are below the poverty line masks giving them color options of masks that their kids might actually want to wear to
2: school you know the other piece that goes along the lines of of what our data found and what theory says on these topics is that we can really start to see a shift in cultural norms And when it just becomes normal that everyone wears a mask, that everyone stays six feet apart, then it's much easier to get momentum and continue those behaviors. And I think I've seen this in my own children. Um, They are attending public school and they're social distancing and they're wearing masks and they're so accustomed to it that I often have to remind them once they get into our home that they can take their masks off that in their world, they've adapted very quickly, and this is the norm for them. But we certainly are seeing on the news that that's not the norm everywhere, and that there are certainly pockets of people um, who may not be as willing to do these behaviors or as able participate in these behaviors. So those are the areas that we want to see where we can adjust our communication and make those messages accessible. One thing that Dr. Rampold didn't mention related to the social distancing piece is we did ask people if they were concerned about mask wearing being a violation of their civil liberties. And just over 70% of the people said that they did not feel like it was a violation of their civil liberties. So uh, that is a rather large majority of people, but that also does mean that almost 30% of people said that they felt like it was a violation of their civil liberties to ask them to wear a mask. So again, as we're trying to identify how we can make public health the cultural norm, we also have to focus um, not just on the majority of the people, but the minority who say those are challenges for them and look at how we can come up with adaptations that are still helpful for overall public health.
0: Yes, because the ones who said that it was a violation felt very strongly about it. So what we did was we asked, do you feel like this is a violation of your civil civil liberties? And you had kind of had to pick a side, yes or no. Those who said, yes, it was, when asked how much did it violate their civil liberties, they were very strongly felt that it did. So, even though they're not the majority, they have very strong, feelings, opinions, beliefs about that stance. So, they cannot be just because they're not the majority does not mean they should be discounted or discredited or overlooked because they have very strong appealing uh, opinions about that.
1: I guess one of my things that I've been thinking for a while is, you know, humans, we are social, right? We are, we have evolved to live with people. We have thrived only because we have been able to interact with other people. And now we're saying, okay, what, what we need you to do is kind of go against the grain and, and go against everything that you've, that is natural to you, right? Have there been some of those challenges there and what you've seen in the survey?
2: Well, one of the things we study in social science a lot is change. And one thing that we know across the board, a hundred percent of the time is that change is hard. And we're asking people to make changes very quickly. So even if people are willing and able to participate in these activities, as you pointed out, it really goes against human nature. Some of these things do. and. My, my middle son, who's six years old, started kindergarten in the middle of this pandemic, he gets in trouble on a regular basis for touching people too much. And it's not being mean. It's, he is very affectionate, and he wants to hug people, and he wants to be near people. And again, that's, that's human, right? So we're asking people to do something that isn't human, and i think i see that in my six-year-old but i see that in myself and i see that in others around me is sure i'm able to do it and i'm willing to do it and i understand the greater good but it's also hard and i think we've seen over and over that people are only able to adapt to a certain level and hopefully the vaccine can be part of this answer, that we're able to control it faster because people do need to be around other people. And we've seen a lot of studies report the impact on mental health right now, the impact on other aspects of society. Because we crave being around people, we need to be around people. And those things are hard and those things are challenging and we all need to be able to see a light at the end of the tunnel to make this work. And and hopefully if we're all able to stay on this current course, we will be able to do those things again soon.
0: You know, just like Dr. Baker said, it's, it's challenging and it's something that we've never seen before. So I think we're all just kind of doing the best that we can. Um, but I think that having information is a huge sense of freedom. You know, you're kind of free to decide what you want to do when you have the information that you need. So we're our job here at the Pi Center is strictly trying to figure out what people know, don't know, feel, don't feel what they're concerned about. So that we can help communicators best direct their messages to kind of alleviate those fears and help them make informed decisions that fit their lifestyle to give them some freedom and autonomy that is driven by science and evidence, you know, to make the best decisions for their family.
1: Just to kind of wrap things up, and and I know you're still going through some of the, the data, and you'll be learning more things as you have more surveys in the future. But so far, what are some of the things we've learned that can help the public health sector going forward now, and then just kind of be prepared in the future as well?
2: So the more we have data, the more we're able to understand Um, how people make decisions and how we can help them make better decisions on a long-term basis. And so I think all of this data will be helpful. Again, as we learned that for the most part, people are willing and able to do this. Um, But from the things we know related to change, people are going to be more open to these opportunities in the future because they've already seen it. So we won't have to define social distancing for people next time. We won't have to explain how a mask works and, and whether a, f- a four and five-year-old like, like my four-year-old can keep one on all day. Well, they can and they have. And so easing back into some of those things could be easier being empowered by having the data now and knowing where people are and what they're willing to accept in the future.
1: I want to thank Dr. Lori Baker and Dr. Shelley Rampold for their discussion in this episode. This concludes our COVID-19 series. I hope you've enjoyed listening, but more importantly, I hope the conversations with all of our guests were informative and revealing, and maybe even changed the way you think about the pandemic. I want to thank my co-workers at the Pi Center who have been integral in launching this new podcast. Ricky Telg, Michaela Kanzer, Sydney Honeycutt, Ashley McLeod-Morin, Elena Poulin, and Valentina Castano. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Follow the UFI Pi Center on social media to learn more about our work and see when we're launching new episodes of the podcast. Until next time, I'm Philip Stokes. Thanks for listening to Science by the Slice.